Hey, you're seconds away from a barrage of analysis on the state of America's solar market. We're working around the clock to map out where this technology is headed, and we are sharing some of that work with you. Good news, our teams are also working with the same passion and rigor on our 11th annual solar summit coming up in San Diego on May 1st and 2nd. We've been doing this event for over a decade. We know this industry, and GTM Solar Summit is the place to go to network with the biggest companies and get the deepest of deep dives into solar markets around the world. And guess what? Our loyal listeners get a discount. That's right. Use the promo code PODCAST for 20% off your registration. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code PODCAST for 20% off your ticket to GTM Solar Summit. I will see you in San Diego. And if you're a utility and you're looking to see deeper insights about your customers, you're looking for five works. FiveWorks is a supporter of the interchange. It uses behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help utilities market to a customer of one. That's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how FiveWorks can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com slash the interchange. That's fiveworks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange, and follow the link on the podcast page. The Interchange is also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage. Shoals has been serving EPCs with the highest quality combiner boxes, junction boxes, wires, racking, and monitoring solutions for over two decades. Shoals is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level, visit Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S dot com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston, out in Oakland, California, Shale Khan, who is the newly minted Senior VP of Energy Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. How was the first week on the job? Fantastic. Very excited to be there and also very excited to be going back and forth to New York a lot, which I haven't been spending as much time in recently. So that is fun. I hope that it is post nor'easter season so that I can make it there and back without too many problems. What's uh, any good solar storylines coming out of the, the job responsibilities yet? Yeah, there are plenty. I mean, you know, we are investing in a bunch of distributed energy technologies and service companies, some of which touch on solar, some of which uh, are pure solar companies. So got a lot of solar in our portfolio and, you know, our, our partners, the utilities who are investors in the, in the fund are obviously acutely interested in what's happening in solar as well. So it's going to remain a big part of what I'm thinking about day to day. You have been clamoring to rant about something. Um, you wanted to make sure that you got this in this week's show. What's on your mind? <laughs> it's just a short rant. So uh, Lacey Johnson for, for GTM wrote a piece um, last week that was just reporting on uh, something the Undersecretary of Energy, Mark, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, so apologies for that, but I think it's Mark Menezes, um, said at a conference about the, the proposed budget for DOE for next year, which, you know, this is the second budget the Trump administration has put out there. And in both of them, it, it sort of slashes funding for EERE, the DOE's um, Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, and then uh, eliminates ARPA-E altogether. And in being asked about that at what was admittedly a renewable energy conference, um, 
he basically said that, well, it, we don't need the funding for EERE anymore because we become a victim of our own success. In other words, um, these technologies that are getting funded in EERE are uh, commercially available now. And so DOE doesn't necessarily have a role there anymore. He says, the quote is, our job is to have early stage research and move it along the technological readiness levels, eventually getting it to where it's commercially deployable. But once it's commercially deployable, then the question becomes, what role does the department need to spend? Um, and there's just a couple of things about that, that that sort of bugged me and why I don't think the logic really holds up. I mean, the first one is, you know, obviously we could debate whether um, it is true that the job of DOE is only to do early stage R&D and that once technologies are commercially ready, DOE doesn't need to be involved anymore. You could certainly point out its involvement in many technologies that are commercially available that can always be improved and around which markets can be structured better and, you know, projects can get more bankable and so on. Second, um, if you actually look at EERE's budget, I mean, presumably what he's talking about when he's saying commercially ready technologies that are that don't need DOE's help anymore, he probably mostly means solar and wind or maybe solar and wind and, and some energy efficiency stuff. And those are a, a decent chunk of EERE's budget, which is, it, it is about $2 billion, would be more like $700 million in this new budget if it went through. Of that $2 billion, only about 300 million goes to solar and wind another 300 or so goes to weatherization so you could put those together and those are a, a, a chunk of the funding but there's also a, a big piece of eere that does go into technologies that i think you could argue are not commercially ready in most cases hydrogen and fuel cell technologies for example get 101 million dollars this year vehicle technologies and there's lots of those that are not commercial yet. So the point just being, I don't think that the the logic holds up on its face. And then second, even if you agree with him that we should really only be, DOE should really only be there to fund early stage technologies that are not yet commercially ready, then there's no reason to eliminate ARPA-E, which is the program designed to do exactly that. So I, it just feels to me like a, like a ex post fast facto explanation for for a, a slashing a budget that just was sort of politically unpopular. Well, you know, you're being so diplomatic. Uh, I think it's just completely absurd. Would you stop the same R&D in the oil and gas industry? I mean, look at the revolution in fracking. Just because we knew how to efficiently and cost competitively drill oil and gas wells didn't stop us from investing money into new fracking techniques. And look what it brought. I mean, a complete change to uh, energy markets because of cheap natural gas. I loved the quote that Lacey put in her article from Elizabeth Knoll from NRDC, and she said that this rationale for gutting the funding was, quote, like stopping research in home movie technology after the VCR. I do agree with that. That was a good one. Yeah. And it also, yeah, right, to that point about fracking, the other thing that the, the other quote from Mark Menezes was, to be sure, you could continue spending money there, there being presumably in, in commercially ready technologies. But then where would the opportunities be for new energy breakthroughs? Well, there's your answer, fracking, right? And the equivalent of that in in every one of the technologies the ERE looks at. So, I mean, in all likelihood, that budget doesn't go through in its current form, just like it didn't last year. But still, I mean, you know, the logic just just doesn't hold up. Well, let's uh, get to today's topic at hand. We're going to be discussing 
uh, solar, the maturing solar market, and we'll we'll bring in some of those political challenges from D.C. as well and how they may be impacting the growth in the solar market. And with us today is Corey Honeyman, who's the Associate Director of U.S. Solar, no stranger to our podcast, and he's going to help us walk through some of the latest numbers that GTM Research has been cataloging alongside SIA in the newest Solar Market Insight report. Corey, how are you? Doing great, Stephen. Glad to be here. So is solar in the VHS phase, the DVD phase, the Blu-ray phase? Where are we at? Mm. You know, I'd like to, I, I think it's more either in the Blu-ray phase or, you know, I think back to when my family bought this uh, this joint VHS DVD player where they had, you know, um, you know, the option to, you know, still stick with both the past and the future at the same time. And I think that, 2017 for U.S. Solar, you know, was in many respects uh, a transition period, uh, both for distributed solar and for utility scale solar, as the market transitioned, you know, after some of the uncertainty of uh, the extension of the federal investment tax credit that still had rippling effects on what did and didn't happen this past year. And also within distributed solar, you know, some changes in the competitive landscape that have had a material impact on who has grown and, you know, subsequently the extent to which the entire segment grew or didn't grow as well. So let's just start with the top line figures and work our way down then. Uh, We saw 10 and a half gigawatts of solar installed in 2017. Pretty good numbers, but uh, 30% less than in 2016. You know, judging from the headlines, a lot of people were surprised by this phenomenon, but y'all at GTM Research expected it. Unpack those numbers. So, Across each segment, we saw utility solar unsurprisingly fall short uh, compared to the record-breaking figures that we saw back in 2016. So uh, a little over 6 gigawatts, approximately 6.2, came online in 2017, which is down from the nearly 11 gigawatts we saw back in 2016. And you know, the easiest and primary explanation behind that is just that there was still so much demand that was pulled into 2016 uh, that cannibalized you know, some of the procurement and the build-out that was intended for 2017 and 2018, just given the timing of the extension of the federal investment tax credit. So it still goes back to the long-talked-about point that the wheels were essentially already in motion for so many projects to come online in 2016 from tax equity commitments, EPC agreements that were in place. Um, ultimately, what happened in 2017 was a bit of a lull in procurement um, and demand f- for power um, within the utility scale segment. Within distributed solar, we kind of saw a reversal of the way in which we've talked about residential and commercial solar. So up through 2016, residential solar has been defined by nonstop, uh, pretty blistering growth rates. Um, up through the first half of 2016, on a quarterly basis, the market had grown 50% plus year over year. Um, since we've been covering residential solar. And so in 2017, on an annual basis, it was the first time residential solar fell. Uh, So it fell approximately 16% year over year. And that's something that can be explained by a couple of factors. So one is this continued growing pain within um, segments of the top national installer landscape. And that's, you know, we kind of talk about that in an abstract term, but it's, you know, in large part, just one for one related to um, the, the challenges that Tesla has faced in incorporating SolarCity 
and the the balancing act that they've had to play in um, striking a balance between maintaining growth and achieving profitability uh, for Solar City. And the reality is is that a lot of um, their plans have resulted in a scale back of sales and operations. That, and that's just one part of the story, but the other part of it too is that there are just segment-wide issues within residential solar that are not just about national installers like Tesla. Uh, so the reality is, is that you still have issues across customer acquisition where costs within that element still remain fairly bloated, not just for the top national installers, but you know even across a lot of larger regional installers too. And so a lot of those issues related to customer acquisition and profitability that extend beyond just the national installers relates to just this other challenging question in residential solar, where some of that slowdown and the, the actual downturn in residential solar might also have to do with some changing customer demographics that are shaping demand within residential solar now. And there's just this looming question about whether we're beginning to see demand expand beyond an early adopter customer demographic that may require some rethinking in how product offerings are pitched to new customers and how those products are structure themselves. All right. So I want to dig in on this residential stuff for a bit, because I, I think it's somewhat confusing to figure out what's actually happening in the residential solar market to me as well. So, okay. So we had this big growth rate market was, was blowing up. Then 2016, 2017 were kind of bloodletting years for a f- all of the major national installers, except for Sunrun. So you mentioned Tesla Solar City. Uh, Vivint had to scale back after the, the Sun Edison acquisition. There were a bunch of bankruptcies, you know, Sungevity being probably the biggest among them, but American Solar Direct, One Roof, you know, a bunch of others. So you've got this one factor, which is like big national players or regional, big regional players scaling back. But then the data, then you might be able to make the case um, that this was, you know, the, the bloodletting was a function largely of the fact that the big national installation model, again, save for Sunrun, maybe doesn't work. And so uh, if that were the case, then all the little local installers would have been growing a whole bunch in 2017. But that's also not really what the data shows, right? They They also were slowing down last year albeit not quite as dramatically. And so then there it, it becomes a little bit harder, I think, to identify exactly why. Um, and you mentioned customer acquisition costs and like the, the possibility that we're getting past the early adopter phase. Where, I guess, what is our evidence that, that that is the case? And do we think that that's a universal thing or is that really just a California thing? Um, it's definitely a California thing. It's also a just major markets thing. So when you look across um, all of the top 10 state markets, only two of them grew year over year. And the the two that grew year over year were Arizona and Utah that were facing um, looming net metering and rate reforms that, you know, created the classic um, boom and pull in demand as a response. So, you know, what we do know is across, you know, the the most penetrated state markets, you know, across the the top states that have been most served with rooftop solar, you're looking at markets that have seen, um, you know, over you know, around like four to five percent of their addressable market has been hit with rooftop solar, and so, you know, on one hand, you could say that you know comparable, um, you know, 
industry verticals, you know, that begins to be kind of around the point in which early adopter customers have been eclipsed. But, you know, the, the counter could just be that um, there is, um, you know, some issues related to how installers are actually approaching customer acquisition. Um, and it, it might just have less to do with the customers themselves, but with the strategies that the companies are employing, right? So, I mean, I think this is this is the big thing here, right? Is that when you talk about the challenges in residential solar, a lot of this has less to do with the, the fundamentals, right? Where we see uh, nearly half or half of state markets in residential solar being past grid parity offering year one savings. Um, and at the same time, in the markets that are most attractive, companies are struggling to specifically expand their sales strategy beyond door-to-door sales and beyond uh, a referral network. And as they tap into different different sales channel strategies, whether it's some kind of online media campaign, retail partnerships, those strategies just have not been a successful one-for-one um, as referrals and door-to-door sales just don't cut it as you scale to um, higher levels of jobs that require tapping into additional sales channel strategies. So a part of it really just is there isn't a clear-cut answer, a clear winner about how do you scale your operations beyond referrals and also either scaling beyond door-to-door or finding an alternative approach. I, I thought that data set actually that you guys presented in that report is super interesting about it basically outlines um, by installer size as measured by number of jobs that they did in a year, um, what portion of the installers that were that size were growing in 2017, what size were shrinking. And it's a surprisingly uniform or I guess a surprisingly consistent distribution, which is basically the smallest of the small installers, those doing you know less than 500 jobs a year were, ba- were largely shrinking. The largest of the large installers, uh, those doing you know thousands and thousands, well over 5,000 jobs a year uh, were also shrinking. But that little like, middle ground that you're talking about, the like you know, 400 to a thousand jobs a year, actually 400 to 2000 jobs a year, they were still growing. So I guess that the conclusion there might be that's the right size for a solar installer. You have enough scale that your overhead can be spread across and, you know, a bunch of jobs. You, you know, can, you're still small enough that you can get a lot of your business off of referrals. You can be local experts and known and stuff like that. Like, is that, do you think that's right? Is it that sort of that, that little, like kind of, that makes you like a large local player basically. Yeah. And those are the, the large local players that have, you know, consistently been telling us that they have and um, continue to expect to grow anywhere between say 10 to 20% per year. And so when you look at, you know, where we see residential solar uh, moving forward, there is, you know, a lot of the growth and the reboot in growth that we expect in 2018 onward is largely because we expect a growing portion of residential solar install volumes to be, you know, increasingly defined by that installer segment. You know, those are the ones that are increasingly defining um, the extent to which we do see a rebound, not just in California, but also in uh, the Northeast markets and the other top 10, top 15 state markets too. So that that is that thesis you're saying does align with what we're seeing. I, I do think that there's still some unanswered questions that as they continue to grow at that, you know, more sustainable, consistent band between say 10 to 20%, at some point they're hitting the levels of that, 
you know, 2000 to 5000 installs per year too. And it's not like any of them have a clear cut answer for how they begin to scale up their operations into new sales channels as well. So I, I think that you do have this pool of installers in um, a lot of the core major state markets that have continued to grow at this more sustainable 10 to 20% rate and do fall within that band of installing in anywhere between say 400 and up to 2000 or so jobs per year. But those companies don't necessarily have the answers to the big problems that have plagued the rest of the installer landscape too. And so I think that that is still, you know, one of the things to caution against that, you know, we main, you know, we maintain a view that the market can experience a reboot moving forward um, and that there are some solutions being tested about how you, you know, tap into alternative customer acquisition strategies, um, also how this interplays with the proliferation of different consumer finance offerings beyond leases and PPAs and sort of looking at who are the leaders within that portion of the installer landscape and their reliance on the sale of loans and cash sales um, in addition to PPAs and leases. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, another part of what explains the, um, the reboot and growth moving forward is that a lot of the installers within that range are not entirely wedded to one particular consumer finance strategy. When you look across a lot of those companies, most of them are still selling both PPAs and leases and loans too. And there isn't just this uniform strategy in the product offerings being pitched across that band of installers too. That's an important point to keep in mind that there has to be some flexibility in what you sell too, recognizing that there is more, you know, ultimately still more risk averse customers that are going to want to always do a PPA and lease no matter what. And you're also going to have other customers in that same neighborhood that have, um, you know, more of an interest in that long-term horizon and going with a loan or a cash sale. Before we move on from this topic, can we spend one minute talking about Sunrun? Because I think oftentimes in these conversations, we we discern, we identify a bunch of trends that are happening in the market, and then we have to throw an asterisk at most of them and say, well, except for Sunrun, right? And that's true of national installers not growing and that model failing or, or struggling, right? Sunrun being an exception to that in that they seem to be doing pretty well generally and, and often exceeding expectations and um, are a national installer with a big national presence and growing. And two, the trend toward direct ownership towards loans, um, Sunrun is, is the slowest to move in that direction, still doing vast majority of its installations using leases and PPAs. Um, but again, it's not hurting as a result of that. So can we discern anything from the fact that Sunrun is appears to be, at least at the moment, very successful at doing uh, exactly the opposite of what the rest of the market is trending toward? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of things to speculate on that front. So, um, you know, one is that they um, they had a different approach than uh, Solar City um, in terms of their timeline for being cash flow positive and also the fact that they have stuck with the messaging to um, public markets about you know the value proposition of third party ownership and they didn't have um, you know they didn't have to go through explaining that transition to public markets and have as much pressure to scale back operations to pursue profitability because they weren't going through some you know systemic change in their business model and weren't dealing with the same cash flow problems to the extent that Tesla was facing. Um, so there, there's that factor. Um, 
And, you know, I'll, I'll also know too that when you look at their business model, they they were ones that had only one foot into the the door of vertical integration. That when you look back a couple of years ago, that was just the the going mantra of what it meant to scale up successfully in residential solar. And they had an approach where, you know, they acquired, you know, REC's residential arm. And so they have a direct install business, but, you know, consistently you're, you're talking about, you know, anywhere between say like upper forties to close to 60% of their business on a quarterly basis is still reliant on their installer partners. And so, their growth is also attributed to the fact that they've been able to take advantage of the other parts of the installer landscape that have been able to still maintain growth amidst some of the challenges at the top level. And so it goes back to, you know, the examples of some of the installers that have been really successful within California that are doing, you know, hundreds of jobs per year. Those are also Sunrun's partners. And so that business model has proven successful for for Sunrun to still have its exposure to that longer tail of the installer landscape as just a financing partner. So there's there's that point. And then the second important point that um, is worth thinking about is when you, Sheila, you mentioned that, you know, in the past year or so, there's been an exit from a number of regional players and some, you know, other um, national installers that we're still trying to scale up. So you look at the likes of NRG Home Solar, um, Direct Energies, Residential Solar Business, um, you know, all of the, the, the changes that have happened with Sungevity's um, downfall and then its merger with um, Horizon. Um, so all of that said, you know, a lot of the residential solar companies that have exited the market um, were highly exposed to um, selling PPAs and leases. And so to an extent, the exit of some of those residential solar companies represented an opportunity for market share capture for Sunrun. And so, you know, with those companies leaving, it, it, it wasn't necessarily that Sunrun was just growing on net in addition to the base case demand that there is for third-party ownership. It was, you know, also explained by their ability to capture um, lost demand um, from the the exit of some of those players like Energy Home Solar and Direct Energy's residential business too. We can't have this conversation without talking about Tesla as well. It's actually been quite extraordinary to see the decline in activity, um, solar activity, when Solar City got folded into Tesla. The the, the latest numbers coming out of uh, Tesla Solar City was that they saw a decline in Q4 of 20%, uh, I think, in, in solar deployed. Well, they say energy generation systems, so that's like both solar and storage. But like we've cataloged a pretty strong double-digit decline in a lot of markets that Solar City was historically dominant in. And, uh, you know, that that's obviously a factor in some of the slowdown. I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, where things stand at Tesla we're clear, hearing a lot of stories out of Tesla that solar is getting de-emphasized, that it is, um, you know, a way to basically sell more storage systems. Tesla is a tech company. They don't really see themselves as a services company in the same way that Solar City did. So 
Solar is really getting funneled as a channel to sell more batteries to homeowners and uh, you know commercial building operators. Now, this gets us back to this interesting question about sales channels too, because in right now, Solar City is closing up some channels, but they are getting Tesla back into big box stores to pitch batteries to homeowners, and then therefore solar. They're obviously going to be doing this in their uh, stores where they're selling cars. So the the home energy package is a bigger piece of that as they detail bef- when they propose the Solar City acquisition. And, uh, you know, we're hearing that finally homeowners who are requesting the solar roof are getting calls back. So there's just real tech-focused approach to customer acquisition that I also, also think is really interesting. Any of you want to comment on Solar City's or Tesla's decline in installations and then the emergence of these new customer acquisition channels for those combined companies? Well, I guess you're simultaneously saying that they're unique and they're indicative of what's happening more broadly, albeit perhaps in a more dramatic fashion. Like SolarCity's uh, or Tesla's downturn in residential solar was much faster than the rest of the market, though it did reflect the trend that was true across the market. And they're sort of testing out new customer acquisition strategies also, you know, seems pretty similar to what uh, Corey was saying before about the challenges the rest of the market is having with scaling and customer acquisition. But again, uh, in a more dramatic fashion. You know, I do think there is still this big question of whether Tesla truly wants to be a solar company, um, a solar installer in particular, right? They, I think you mentioned they style themselves as a product companies. And right now what they've got is a, is a, you know, commoditized rooftop solar product. Um, so that's not in, in fitting exactly with what Tesla, I think, wants to be, which is why they've been pushing the solar roof so hard. But of course, the solar roof uh, is a big challenge to manufacture. And so it's not being rolled out at scale at all right now. Um, and it may be soon, but until then, they are in this position where they have this this you know big business that they bought for well over $2 billion um, that they're trying to figure out what to do with, I think. And the idea that you know solar as a way to sell more batteries does make some sense because one of the earlier use cases for residential batteries that isn't backup power is going to be self-consumption of solar. So that's fair, um, I think. But, you know, what they're doing is they're just going from being by far the largest residential solar installer in the country to being something more of a niche player who is focused on either new products like the solar roof or focused on selling only solar plus storage, which for the rest of the market um, is a very small but growing share of their pie. So I think it's still just, you know, it's an identity crisis that they're going through that they're they're going to come out of over the next few years. Coming up, a conversation about utility scale solar pricing and solar plus storage. If that's the game that you're in and you're looking to shave off more pennies from your utility-scale solar system, you should be looking at Scholz Technologies Group. It's a leading producer of balance of system solutions for solar and now storage. The Scholz slogan is inventing simple because it doesn't matter what the product is. A combiner box, junction box, inline fuse, a monitoring system, Scholz makes it with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. 
Scholl's new BLA solution embodies this approach. It's an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and significantly lowers installation costs. Scholl's has been serving the industry since 1996, and after years of exponential growth, this American company maintains the same passion for quality and innovation. If you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, including the BLA solution, contact Scholl's. You can find more at shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S dot com. The Interchange is also brought to you by Five Works. In this digital age, the world expects more, you know, way beyond meter data. You know, if you're a utility, you're not only being asked to better engage and service your customers, you're being asked to anticipate their changing expectations and preferences. That's what all sophisticated companies do these days. So what does it mean to truly know your customers? And can you leverage your data and the rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business? With FiveWorks, absolutely. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives customer action at scale using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning, enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. Go to fiveworks.com slash the interchange to learn more about how you can engage the customer of one. That's FiveWorks with an X. Fiveworks.com slash the interchange. Can we switch over from talking about residential to talking about utility scale solar? Because Corey, I'm curious to hear from you. So we know the big trend, right? Which was this big buildup and pipeline, which was getting built out mostly in 2016, then a bunch of it bled over into 2017. And you've got sort of less procurement in 2017 as a result, but now kind of a resumption that that is going to lead to growth again and that the kind of 2019, 2020 range. Um, but the other thing that's been happening for the past couple of years that I'm interested to get an update on is just the uh, constantly ever declining PPA prices for utility scale solar and those prices then becoming more and more competitive with, with other technologies. So like, what's that, where do we stand right now when new PPAs are getting signed for, for utility scale solar projects? Like what kind of pricing are we seeing out there today? You know, I think for, um, you know, a while the, the range has been between say 30 and, and $45 a megawatt hour has been the, the competitive band. And I, and I think that that band has actually narrowed a bit more where you're seeing, um, you know, a lot of the PPA sign just over the past three to six months, um, consistently be between say, you know, 30 to mid to upper thirties, uh, dollar per megawatt hour. Um, and there's, you know, some outliers to that. Um, we've seen a, a couple of PPAs signed, uh, below, uh, $30 a megawatt hour. And then there's, um, you know, the recent Excel energy solicitation that, um, you know, initially had bids come in at just below $30 a megawatt hour for standalone solar. And then um, following the decision on section 201 tariffs, they went slightly up. So, uh, you know, I think when you look at what is a competitive PPA price for utility solar, 30 to $35 per megawatt hour is, you know, that narrow band in particular that we're seeing. Well, since we're on the utility scale solar, I'm, I'm really interested in solar plus storage on the utility scale. And we've seen a bunch of new activity um, so we can kind of see where prices land. In Arizona, for example, we don't know the pricing exactly, but APS signed a deal with First Solar for a 65 megawatt solar, 50 megawatt battery project to provide firmed solar power. And 
Then shortly after, regulators put a hold on any gas plants above 150 megawatts in order to evaluate whether those plants are going to become stranded assets potentially as batteries paired with renewables increasingly compete. Uh, so activity is starting to increase. Solar developers are starting to think about pairing batteries with their projects to provide different types of services with their solar what is the what's your assessment of the solar storage market now on the utility side? Where are some of these PPA prices coming in and like how serious are developers getting with batteries paired with solar projects? Yeah, so I mean I think you can count on one hand the number of, you know, um solar plus storage uh, PPA announcements that are also paired with any indicative pricing. Um so I mean that range seems to be coming in uh between uh you know 30 again also it seems to be coming in between say like mid 30s to you know 40s or so dollars per megawatt hour so it's it's a somewhat comparable range um although that you know sample uh sample size of of solar plus storage ppas is coming from you know some of the most um attractive markets in terms of higher solar insulation as well um and just you know being the, the most attractive fundamentals for having a solar plus storage um uh the bid price put into these solicitations. So I think, you know, where, where we're at right now is you, you have these, you know, one-off solicitations that have happened in, you know, in Arizona, Hawaii and, and California. Um, and I, I think one of the challenges is that even as you continue to see um, the continued compression and, uh, and pricing and, and just the competitiveness of solar plus storage firm PPAs is just, you know, is the, the regulatory landscape going to keep up with um, the continued cost reductions? Are, you know, are the, is there going to be um, a large enough market in place to actually compensate solar plus storage for the service offerings it can provide compared to an energy only PPA um, that, you know, is driving the majority still of solar origination opportunities. And so when you look at its involvement um, in markets beyond just the, you know, traditional like ancillary services um, and thinking about how solar plus storage PPAs can help and be compensated for renewable integration, um, you know, how they can be compensated for any other, um, you know, deferrals of, of grid infrastructure on the TND side of things. You know, I, I still think that a lot of the questions that still apply to scaling up just standalone front of the meter storage arguably still apply to the solar plus storage segment too on the front of the meter. I do think you're going to get a lot of policy support for this though. We were starting to see it now, right? This The, the idea of the clean peak standard, which is, um, I think was pioneered by Lon Huber at, at Stratagen Consulting. So credit to him, but has now been sort of a bunch of states are now looking at, at doing it. We just saw Massachusetts. Um, there's a bill that just got introduced that would include it there. And so that basically, it looks like a, a renewable portfolio standard that we're, we're all used to, except for instead of measuring the standard as just a percentage of of all generation that needs to come from renewables, you say a percentage of peak generation or peak capacity needs to come from renewables. And that basically creates an incentive for storage, for solar plus storage or wind plus storage or something like that. But does that, I mean, but Sean, I'm curious, does that actually create an incentive specifically for solar plus storage? Or is that really just more 
laying the groundwork for a market for standalone yeah, uh, front of the meter. That's storage. a good question. I think it depends how the market is structured. Broadly speaking, if the if the market uh, or the market design is such that you're saying we need a certain portion of our peak capacity to come specifically from renewables and depending how you measure that, then you need that storage to be paired with solar to guarantee that it is charged with solar when it then discharges at the peak. Um, that is not necessarily any different from a systemic perspective from just putting solar in one place and storage in another place. So it depends how the legislation is written. Um, but there's also, you know, in the near term, there's also the, obviously the, the co-location benefit of, of being able to get the ITC for storage if it, um, if it comes and charges solar. So there's, you know, co-location has a somewhat temporary, but meaningful, side benefit there. So my suspicion would be at least for the first few years of these clean peak standards, it's mostly paired assets. And then, and then afterwards, I think it depends on how the market is designed. All right, guys, I've got a question for both of you. So I revealed my storyline that I'm kind of paying attention to in 2018 and beyond. And that is like what happens to um, solar at plus storage pricing and utility procurements and you know the the evolving business models around hybridized renewables so that's like a storyline that's really interesting for me that i suspect we'll hear more about any hidden storylines that you guys are following that may or may not be reflected in these numbers shale well uh in 2018 i guess i'm going to continue to be watching out for my white whale which is small commercial solar uh the market that has never found a way to scale but for which there seems to be a perennial new crop of companies attempting to find solutions and i like some of the ones that that are out there trying to do it now wonder capital creating financing platform you could also say the same of sunwealth which is based in the northeast um and then a bunch of others as well so you know, that's a market that like just has always been right around the corner. Um, there's well, but wait, enormous... non-residential did really well. Yeah, but not small commercial. Not small, small commercial, commercial, right? Yeah, we've just, it's gotten, in fact, it's gotten generally from a broad market perspective, it's gotten worse and worse. As the commercial solar market overall has grown, the share that comes from small commercial, and you could define that as say like under a megawatt, projects under a megawatt, um, has shrunk during that time. So to the extent that we've seen growth in CNI, it's generally been large-scale CNI or in particular in 2017, community solar. So somebody at some point, I think, is going to crack the code on small commercial. Um, and I'm excited for whoever could do it. So non-residential more broadly. So you sort of think about, you know, not just small commercial, but large CNI. Um, you think about the role of community solar, um, and then all the other customer verticals beyond CNI that are baked into non-residential solar. Collectively, that segment uh, grew year over year in 2017. So it was it was the only segment um, compared to residential and utility scale that actually grew in 2017 after a few years of pretty flat demand. Um, so there was a bit of this role reversal um, with non-residential growing compared to the other two segments. And a couple of things that stand out that are, you know, some of just the less talked about uh, storylines within U.S. solar are all happening within the non-residential segment. So there are a couple of things that have stood out to me. So one is just the the emergence of community solar as being the fastest growing segment across all of U.S. solar. It added over 400 megawatts in 2017, uh, doubling for the second year in a row. 
Um, and so that was, you know, in large part due to the emergence of Minnesota's community solar market that added more uh, community solar in one year than what we saw in the total segment uh, for community solar in the prior year. Um, and, you know, looking ahead, there's, there's definitely some legislative cliffs as certain markets transition to new incentive programs. But the expectation is that community solar will provide this important cushion to supporting demand for non-residential solar as small CNI um, continues to kind of figure itself out and figure out how to um, scale up its access to um, new sources of financing, um, also at a, a cheaper cost of capital, too. So that, that's one big segment um, and storyline to keep in mind. The, the second one within non-residential solar is the um, you know, increased reliance that that segment has on solar plus storage compared to um, front of the meter and residential solar. Uh, so that um, you know, in particular is the most reliant segment on solar plus storage. So you look across a lot of the top state markets, um, you know, on the storage side, anywhere between 40 to 60% of CNI storage installations are paired with solar. And it's, you know, the one segment when you think about the different market applications, um, that there is a lot of real traction in um, a lot of the core state markets that you think about defining distributed solar. So across California and within the Northeast, you know, there's a real value proposition for even just demand charge management that I think differentiates solar plus storage and non-residential compared to residential where the economics are a bit more challenging with it primarily being based off of load shifting. And as mentioned before, solar plus storage for the front of the meter segment still having a lot of more theoretical market applications as opposed to ones that are being commercialized and put into place. So again, just the, the broader story there is just that non-residential solar's reboot is defined by this just more diverse set of project development opportunities beyond just um, rooftop solar um, is really explaining that rebooting growth we saw over the past 12 months. So if you were an installer, would you be foolish to not be considering storage right now? Um, without question. I, I think that, you know, CNI customers in particular, um, they're just a more complex beast uh, compared to uh, the residential customer segment. They are looking for this more holistic energy management strategy at this point that requires you to be at least articulate in talking about the value proposition of storage in addition to solar. And so I think when you look at just the um, emerging uh, commercial solar providers that are, um, you know, the real leaders within that space over the past year, you know, all of them are offering some kind of storage solution um, into their portfolio. So um, it, it's something that's already happening and is, you know, a big part of the differentiator when you look across the developer landscape um, that has fueled the rebooting growth for the broader non-residential solar segment. Well, don't get left out. This is just one example of a quickly evolving area in solar that you need to learn more about. And we're gathering the top experts from around the world to talk about them at GTM Solar Summit. So Corey helped us with a lot of them and there's just way more to talk about, particularly because we're expanding to a global scope. Don't forget that you get a 20% discount for being a loyal podcast listener. So just use the promo code podcast at checkout when you go to greentechmedia.com slash events and sign up for Solar Summit. So come join Corey and me and the rest of our team, plus execs from the top solar companies for our global solar extravaganza in San Diego on May 1st and 2nd. You'll get the numbers from GTM Research and the strategy insight from companies how they're facing some of these market forces. 
We focused a, a lot on U.S. solar here again, but Solar Summit's going to address a variety of leading markets around the world. And we've also got our Solar Software Summit to kick things off, which will examine how software can and will change the way you run your business. We'd be just delighted to see you. So uh, thanks, guys, for the conversation. And thank you all for listening and hope to see you in San Diego. With Corey Honeyman and Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.